The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Romans chapter 8. And the title of my message for you is, If God is for you. If God is for you. So one of the games, I don't know if you would call it a game, but just a fun way to get to know someone is to ask them a series of what if questions. You ever done that? Just like, what if this, what if that? So um, I think it's kind of fun. So I have a few of those to get us started tonight. So like, what if you could be famous, but poor forever? Would you still want it? Just a fun thing to think about. What if you could say a sentence and the whole world would hear it? What would you say? You had one sentence the whole world would hear. How about this one? What if you were a hot dog, but you were starving? Would you eat yourself? These are what if questions that you need to think about. What if you found a suitcase with $10 million just walking down the street, 10 million bucks? What would you do with that? Fun question to think about. What about this one? What if animals could talk? Which kind of animal would you be most excited to talk to? Maybe least excited. I don't know. Here's a fun one for the summer. What if you could be an Olympic athlete? What sport would you compete in? Anyways, scripture is filled with if statements too. I'm not sure if you've noticed that or not, but it's something that I've been thinking about. In fact, there are approximately 1,784 ifs in your Bible. And each one of those ifs it, it acts like a hinge. Every if leads down a different path based on the choices that we make, right? If you choose one thing, it leads you down one path. If you choose the opposite, then you go down the opposite way. If this, then that, right? It's crazy to think about the, the ifs that have led you to this moment in your life. This, this moment in your life, sorry. So. If you hadn't chosen to go to that particular college, then you would have never enrolled in that particular class, and you would have never sat by that particular girl, and you would have never fallen in love, and you would have never gotten married, and you would have never moved to California, or whatever. The, The story goes on. Our lives are filled with all of these divergent paths that break off on all of these ifs. A lot of things ride on each and every if. And the same thing is true with regards to all the ifs in the Bible. So I'll I'll read to you a smattering of them. James 4, 8 says, if we draw near to God, then he'll draw near to us. That's a pretty cool if. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says, if my people who are called by my name If they cry out to me, then I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it will obey you. You see how each one of these ifs are filled with potential. They're filled with possibility. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring some of them together. But here's the if question that I want to consider with you this evening. What if you really believed that God was for you every single day 
in every single way. Let me say that again, because I really want it to sink in. What if you believed that God was for you every single day in every single way? How might that change the way that you live? And I need you to really sit with that one, because the, the truth of the matter is, I'm not sure that we really believe that God is for us. In fact, most of us, most of the time, might walk around pretty convinced that he's bummed at us, down on us, disappointed with us. Oh, really, you did that again? Man, you can't get anything right. And if you were to close your eyes and picture the throne of heaven with God the Father sitting on it, what expression do you see on his face? Is it eyes that are crinkled by creases because his cheeks are raised in a smile as he looks at you with love? Or is it a look of condemnation? Is it a look of disappointment or perhaps something else? You see, all of this sets the stage for what I want to talk to you about tonight, right here in Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans chapter 8 is a special chapter in the Bible. The whole of the book of Romans has been compared to the Himalayan mountain range in Nepal and China. It's the tallest mountain range in the world. And if that is the case, if the book of Romans is the Himalayan mountain range because of the lofty theological ideas the, the apostle Paul tackles in that book, then Romans chapter 8 is Mount Everest. You see, in Romans 8, Paul is at his very best, and he digs into some of the deepest theological truths that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And so we're going to get to look at some of these blessings that belong to us because of what Jesus has done with us. But I want us to begin there right in verse 31. Paul says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? And then here's our if statement. What should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Paul is essentially asking, what should we say in response to this? So in other words, what is the conclusion of this matter? Paul has been building a case throughout the eighth chapter of Romans, and he's reached this pinnacle moment, and this is his conclusion statement. So what is it? What is it that Paul is wanting to drive home with us? And here it is. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Paul's point is, if God really is for us, then it doesn't matter who's against us. The whole world could come against us and it wouldn't matter if God is for us. But again, the word if gives us pause, doesn't it? Because it leaves room for doubt. If he's for us, then great. But is he? Is God really for us? That's the question we want to consider. Well, thankfully, we don't have to wonder or guess or speculate on whether or not God is for us. We can know. And by the end of tonight, I hope you are settled and convinced in regards to this matter in your heart tonight. So how? How can we know? Well, by considering the evidence. You see, in this chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, Paul gives us what I see as four lines of evidence in support of his thesis statement that God is for you. And because of that, you don't need to worry about anything else. So let's go ahead and just walk through each of those together. Proof number one that God is for us, Paul would say, is the cross. And this is a big one, guys. You see, the cross settles once and for all the question of God's love and concern for us. 
The cross is the exclamation point on this matter. God understood that we would always wrestle, that there would always be a lingering doubt in our minds with regards to this issue. As we sit on this side of eternity, he knew there would always be that doubt about whether or not he really loves us. So he put the question to bed when he drove a stake into the ground at the cross and he said, this is how much I love you. By this we know that God loves us. He demonstrated his love for us at the cross. It's at the cross that we see the breadth and the width and the depth and the height of the love of God that Paul says would surpass even human knowledge. But why does the cross show us God's love for us? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, it was his love for us that led him to the cross. You see, sin created a gulf between us and God, and there has to be a payment for sin. And so Jesus took our place, and and it was because of his love for us that he went to the cross. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it like this. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame, because there was a joy that he could see on the other side of it. It was the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the shame of the cross. Now, what was that joy? I believe wholeheartedly that the joy that drove Jesus through the cross, that carried him through the torture and the pain and the suffering of those six hours on a hill called Golgotha, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, the joy was you and you and you and you and me. He saw us. He saw us. And he loved us. You were that joy. That's why he did it. It's been said that he was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He was crucified so that we might be crowned. He was bruised so that we might be brought near. And to think, he did all of that before we loved him, before we knew him, before we were seeking to live lives that brought him pleasure or glory or honor, or before we even wanted anything to do with him for that matter. The Bible says that God proved his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It was when we were at our worst, not when you were sitting in church with your Bible open on your lap, singing praises and worshiping God. No, if you go to the worst moment of your life, that's when God demonstrated his love for you by going to the cross for you. For all the times that we turned our back on him, he laid his back bare to the cat of nine tails. For all the times that we used our feet to walk away from him, he allowed those feet to be pierced through with a nail. For all the time that we used our minds to conjure up evil imaginations, he allowed them to place a crown of thorns on his head. At every point, in every way, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that's Paul's point. He goes on to make it right here in verse... 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, he didn't even spare his son. Paul is making an argument from the greater to the lesser here. He's saying, if God already sent us his son to die on the cross in our place for our sins, if he took care of our greatest need and demonstrated his love for us in that way, then how much more so is he going to take care of all of the little things in our lives? The lesser needs, 
So all that to say this, if you're ever tempted to doubt or question whether God is for you or not, then just go back to the cross. This is why we do communion here each and every week. We go back to the cross. We're reminded that God is for us. It is the ultimate proof that he loves us and is for us. But we're just getting started. You see, there's a second line of evidence that Paul gives us in the eighth chapter of Romans in support of this statement that God is for us. And it's this, he not only went to the cross for us, but he now lives to make intercession for us. We see this in verses 33 and 34. Paul says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He lives to intercede for us. Now, these, these scriptures that we just read, they, they conjure up or are meant to conjure up in our mind's eye the imagery of a courtroom setting and presiding over the affairs of the court. Sitting as judge, you have God the Father. And then over here, we have the, the um, prosecuting attorney. He's the one bringing the charges against us. We're the plaintiff in this courtroom scene. And Satan is the accuser. In fact, if you look up the word Satan, it means adversary or accuser. And that's what he is. That's what he does. We have to think of him down in hell with his pitchfork and his horns and all that. But did you know Satan's not down in hell? He spends most of his time in heaven. And you know what he does up there? He's accusing us day and night. We get a glimpse of this in the Old Testament book of Job. And God is having this conversation with Satan. He says, where have you been? He goes, oh, it's going to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to devour. And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? By the way, Lord, feel free to never bring me up in any context like that with the devil. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. amen. So God's like, what about Job? <laughs> Thanks, God. But there's Satan. And the rest of the book of Job is Satan going, well, he's only, he only blesses you because you've blessed him, and so on and so forth. And we know how the story goes from there. So the worst part about all those accusations that the devil is bringing against us is that they just happen to be true. We're guilty on all counts, aren't we? But all is not lost. Why? Because we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney who stands on our behalf. So Satan can try to condemn us. He can try to attack us. But none of his condemnation, none of his accusations stick. Why? Because Paul says Christ Jesus died. More than that, he raised to life. And he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Now that word intercede, what does it mean? To intercede means to intervene on behalf of another or to mediate or to plead the needs of someone else. And it's not just something that Jesus does for us every once in a while or once in a great while. It's something that he does all the time. In fact, check this out. A companion verse to what we just read is found in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and it says this. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to make intercession for us. And here's what all of that means. Right now, at this very moment, you, me, we have an advocate in heaven who stands in our defense in the courtroom of God in heaven. So think of it like this. Imagine 
I just want to paint this picture because I think it's so key. Imagine that you leave church tonight and you're driving home and you've got a lead foot and you're like really speeding and you want to see how fast you can go. And so this, I'm not advocating for this at all, but let's just pretend that you're going like 105 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. And now let's imagine that a cop is sitting there with his radar gun, got you, Boom, takes off after you, catches you, you know you're stuck. So your car immediately gets impounded. And then the, the cop brings you straight over to the courthouse so you can stand trial before the judge right then and right there. You know this is not good. But then what if the county that you got caught in just so happens to be the same county in which your dad resides as the sitting judge? That'd be pretty convenient. That'd be pretty nice. That gives you hope. Maybe he'll let you off the hook. But then you remember something about your dad. Yes, he loves you. But he's also a good judge. He's fair and he's just. And he always does what's right, even when it's inconvenient. And this makes you nervous. As you stand before him in the courtroom, afraid to make eye contact with him, the evidence is produced. They have you on video. They have all of the evidence. It's beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are guilty, guilty, guilty. And so when the judge asks you, how do you plead, you're forced to confess, I'm Guilty as charged. At this point, your dad looks down and says, well, that'll have to be a $5,000 fine or one week in jail. And the gavel falls. Since you don't have any money to pay the fine, the bailiff then walks into the courtroom and shackles you and begins to carry you away to pay your dues to society. You're going to spend the next week in jail. But just before you leave the courtroom, let's imagine now that the judge says, hold on, don't leave yet. And he stands up from his seat and he climbs down from his bench and walks down the stairs. Now imagine that he takes off his robes of the judge and he comes over and he asks the bailiff for the keys and he unlocks your shackles. And then he sits you back down and he pulls out his wallet. And he writes out a check for $5,000. He says, I'm paying this for him. You see, as judge, he had to do what was right. But as dad, in love, he was moved to pay the price for his son. But this is God in the picture. So let's take it a step further. So then the judge turns to you, his son, who just got caught for speeding her daughter for speeding 135 miles in the 35 mile an hour zone. He says, there's a private limo waiting out front for you. I've got an all expense paid trip for you to go to Hawaii with all of your friends. And by the way, there's a quiver of brand new surfboards in the back of the limo. I want you to surf your brains out and have the time of your life. I've rented a mansion for you on Maui in front of the best surf spot. You're going to have a, a chef from Nobu there that's cooking you dinner every single night. I could go on and on. You get the point. This is the picture of what God has done for us, only infinitely more so. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus paid the price. In fact, did you know that the last thing he cried out from the cross was to telestai? One word in the Greek, in the Aramaic, three words in English. It is finished. It was a term borrowed from the financial world and it meant paid in full. 
What was paid in full? In that moment, Jesus was declaring to Satan and to hell itself and to all humanity that the payment for sin had been met. The penalty had been taken away. When Jesus died on the cross, he took that list of accusations that was against you and he nailed it right there to the cross so that over each and every one of those accusations, you can now write, paid for by the blood of Jesus. Somebody better say amen. And now he says it gets better than that because I'm writing your names in the Lamb's book of life. And you're coming to heaven with me forever. I'm bringing you into my family as a son or a daughter. As it's been said, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. So what all of this means for us is simply this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, when? Right now. I love that. I, I put emphasis on the now. Some of you have been walking around under a cloud of shame and condemnation. That cloud lifts tonight. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of what he's done for us. The cross. He intercedes for us. Praise the Lord. God is for you. Look at the person next to you and tell them, God is so for you. <laughs> Proof number three. The cross is line of evidence number one. The fact that he lives to make intercession for us is evidence number two. Proof number three. He's working all things together for your good. Verse 28. And we know, we know this. By faith, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's what this verse is telling us. At this very moment, God is using everything in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to bring you good and him glory. And I need to say that because when we read this verse, when we hear it, this is a familiar verse. It's a coffee cup Verse, it's a verse that we plaster on t-shirts and what have you. But when we hear it, God's working everything together for good, immediately something bristles inside of us and there's some tension that arises in the room because we know that, but yet at the same time, we look around at a world and we see a lot of things that aren't good. And so it's tough for us to reconcile. And this is why it's so important to note that this verse is not saying that everything that happens in your life will be good if you follow God. That's not what this verse is saying. Sometimes I wish it said that. It says that God works together in the life of the believer, all things for good. Ultimately, eventually, it all comes together to produce a good final product in your life. They're working together. Now, in the Greek, th those words working together, they, they form the same word from which we get our word synergy from. You know what synergy is? It's different parts working together. It's two or various substances all combining to create something good. The, the analogy I like to use for this, of course, is baking, right? I love to bake. Uh, as I get older, I mean, I think it's just I love food, really, let's be honest. But I, I love to cook. I'm watching cooking shows. I'm looking up recipes. I have like this ongoing list of recipes. If you have a good one, send it to me. But I've got this great cookie recipe that I've like so keen on lately. And one of the things you know if you like to bake or you like to cook is that a lot of the ingredients that you use for these things that you're baking are horrible in and of themselves, right? Like you wouldn't just eat 
flour. You wouldn't just eat baking soda. You wouldn't just ingest salt. Maybe the sugar, but, but there's a lot of things that you wouldn't eat in and of themselves. But something magical happens when you take all of these various elements and you combine them together and then you stick them in the oven at 405 degrees for about 10 and a half minutes and you pull them out and voila, you've got cookies to the glory of God, amen? And that's a picture of what God does in our lives. He takes all of these different ingredients, some sweet, some bitter, some tart, and he weaves them together. He kneads the dough of our lives so that what is ultimately produced in us is something that looks a lot more like Jesus. And there are countless examples of where you can find this in scripture, but I think my favorite one is the life of Joseph. A guy who, if you've read his story in the book of Genesis, he walked through trial after trial after trial. His brothers take him and they're jealous of him because he's got like the coolest jacket, I guess. And so they, they steal his jacket and then they, they beat him up and they throw him in a pit and they sell him off as a slave. And then he has this whole ordeal where he winds up in Egypt and gets thrown in prison and so on and so forth. And then at the end of the whole saga, He's standing there at the right hand of Pharaoh and he's in charge of the whole deal and his brothers are forced to come and bow before him as they're begging for food. And Joseph looks at these men who had done so much harm to him and this is what he says to them in one of the most powerful moments in scripture, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And I don't know what it is in your life that you're dealing with right now. And it looks like there's no way God could bring good out of this. This thing that I'm walking through, this is hell. How does God bring good out of something like this? And all you have to do is look at the cross. God took the ugliest, most heinous act in the history of humanity, and through that horrible act of the cross, he brought the greatest good, the salvation of mankind. And if God can do that through the cross, then I promise you he can take whatever you're going through and he can bring about good in it and through it for you and glory for him. Amen. So that's the third one. He's, he is for you. Let's say it with a little more force this time to the person on the other side that you didn't look at last time. Tell him God is so for you. He really is. The fourth line of evidence that Paul offers us in this chapter as proof that God is for us is none other than the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He has given us his spirit. And we see this in chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. But we don't have time to look at all of those tonight. So I want to look at just one verse. Look at verse 15. The spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. God didn't bring you into his family to treat you as a slave. He brought you in as a son or a daughter. Now listen, listen, listen. The, the Israelites endured 400 years of slavery 
in Egypt, didn't they? 400 years. And that does something to a person's psyche. It breaks them down. It becomes ingrained in their DNA. This is who I am. The Israelites had a slave mentality. And so God, through the hand of Moses, sets them free. And they walk through the Red Sea. And then the Egyptian army is swallowed up. And in that moment, they're set free. They're not slaves any longer. But check this out. You can be set free in a moment, but oftentimes it takes years to be delivered from what that does inside of you, okay? So they were set free in a moment, but being set free is not the same thing as walking in freedom. And some of you have been delivered, you've been set free from slavery, but you still have a slave mentality and God is trying to bring you into this new identity as a son or a daughter. And the way he does that is through the work of his Holy Spirit. You see, Galatians 5 says that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's redundant. He set, he set us free for freedom. Well, that's because, again, there's a difference between being set free and walking in freedom. And God wants us to walk in freedom. How does he do that? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. His spirit comes inside of us. And his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we really do belong to God. There's something inside of you that just compels you to join in when the worship is happening and you're, you're just praising God and you say, my spirit just resonates with this truth. I'm caught up in it. The word ministers to your heart. When you get off track, you get discipline. That's how you know you're one of God's kids, okay? God doesn't discipline other people's kids. Like sometimes I would love to discipline other people's kids. Amen, parents out there. Like you see them, you're like, Oh, man. But no, you can't discipline other people's kids. You can only discipline your own kids. And so God disciplines his own kids. If you've come under the chastisement of the Lord, and you're like, man, I'm always getting caught. Praise the Lord. It's just proof that you belong to him. Now, if you can keep on living in sin and nothing ever happens, you're like, oh, this is great. Be careful. It might be a sign that, well, are you really one of his kids? Because God disciplines those whom he loves. He also helps us, that is the spirit. He helps us to pray and he empowers us to live the Christian life and he assures us of God's acceptance and love for us. What's more, the spirit serves as our guarantee that God will finish the work that he began in us. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now that word seal there is the same word that is used in the ancient language for the Greek language for an engagement ring. The Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring that Jesus is going to come up and marry the bride that he espoused himself to. So all of this, in conclusion, leads us to one outcome. God is for us in every single way, at every single moment of every single day. God is so for you. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. He's at this very moment interceding for you. He's promised that he is working all things together for good in your life. And he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. So here's where all of that leaves us. It means that nothing can stop us. If you are a child of God, it doesn't matter if the world comes against you. You and God make a majority in every situation. Paul kind of lands in that spot. He says it this way in verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. 
Now, more than conquerors, that phrase there, it's, one, it's a compound word in the Greek, hypernukeo. Hyper means a superlative, over, above. Just think of the word super. Nikeo means victorious. So we are super conquerors. We are superheroes. We are superlative victorious, the superlative of victory. Super victors, can't lose. God is for us. The whole world could come against us and it wouldn't matter. How do you stop somebody like that? The answer is you can't. And the early church is proof of this, aren't they? The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they tried to, to threaten the first disciples and say, you better not preach or teach or heal in the name of Jesus or we're going to come after you. And they said, man, you judge between us whether it's right to listen to you or to God, but we can only speak what we've seen and heard. So we're going to do what God tells us to do. So they take them after they won't listen and they beat them severely thinking that'll stop them. What did they do? Acts chapter four says they left their place rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer alongside of Jesus. So they said, okay, we got to notch this up. We got to take it to the next level. And they actually took rocks and they stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And what did he do? He prayed for them while they did that. To Paul, they said, we'll kill you. And he said, well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain anyway. So you can stop. You can do whatever you want. There was an early church father named Tertullian. And at the time he was pastoring, and there was intense persecution coming against the church. And so he wrote to the governor and he said, you can mow us down. You can torture us. You can kill us. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, we cannot be stopped. That is the mentality of a hypernikeo, a super conqueror. That is the spirit that has been passed down to us, that we are the children of the king. We have the assurance of his abiding, indwelling presence. We have the promise that he's coming back for us soon. We have the empowerment of his spirit to carry out his will and to carry with us the gospel wherever we go. We have the confidence that when we preach the word, he's going to fill our minds and our hearts with what to say so we don't need to even and worry about that. And then as the seed gets planted, God is going to bring the increase. We have the confidence of all of this because of Jesus. You need to understand something. You see, if God is for you, then who can be against you? Well, guess what? He is. So it doesn't matter who's against you. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this word of encouragement. Thank you, Lord, that you are for us. You're not just with us. And it's, it's crazier than that because you go beyond being for us. The Bible says that you dwell within us to align our hearts with your will. So Jesus, we don't want to just play church. We don't want to just check a box. We don't want to just hear a talk, Lord. We want to do more than that. We thank you that you have been faithful to speak to us through your word. I believe that you have challenged many of us. I believe that you have brought comfort to many hearts tonight. There are some, and for the longest time, you feared in your heart of hearts that God might love you in the sense of you because you're part of the world and for God so loved the world. And so, yeah, I guess he loves you in that general kind of way. But you haven't yet, in your heart of hearts, 
settled this idea that God is for you. And if you were the only person on this planet that Jesus would have come and he would have died just for you, such as his love for you, the depth, the breadth, the width, the height of his love for you, it surpasses knowledge. It can't be comprehended. It must be tasted. It must be experienced. And so my prayer for us tonight is, as a people, we would come under the waterfall of your grace that issues forth from your throne in heaven, that we would find ourselves going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper still, God, until we're overwhelmed, until we're undone. Lord, we want to swim in the deep end of your love tonight. Jesus, move in our midst. You're for us. You are with us. You love us and you dwell in us, Jesus. Bless you. We're going to move into a time of worship. The elements of communion are always available for you. It's an opportunity for you to go back to the cross, to center yourself again in the heart of the Father, to do business with Jesus, to let him wash over you, cover you, to hear his word as he declares, you're my beloved, you're my son, you're my daughter. You bring me such intense joy. It was, it was you that I saw. It was you that I was thinking about. You were on my mind as I hung there between two thieves on that cross. And the shame, I despised it. But Jesus is saying to you, but I saw you. And in my opinion, that made it worth it. I was willing to endure the cross, though I despised the shame because there was a joy on the other side. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.